This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. What's really interesting to me again and again throughout history is that when everything else around us seems to change, human nature never does. So in this story, there's genius and mediocrity, there's ambition, envy, courage, cowardice, friendship and betrayal. So all of these, it's just human nature, both at its best and its worst. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Candace Millard is one of my most favorite writers. She knows how to unravel a story about lost history and adventure and betrayal. Her latest book is called River of the Gods, and it's a tale about two adventurers who want nothing more than infamy. And we know that most of the time, those stories don't end well. So let's start from the beginning of the story. It starts in 1854 when Richard Burton and John Hanning speak first meet. Burton is in Aden. He's about to start his first trip into East Africa to try to search for the elusive source of the White Nile. And he finds out that one of the members of his expedition has died before he can arrive. And John Hanning speak is there. He's on a hunting trip. He's on leave from the British Army. And he asks Burton if he can go along with him. And Burton has all kinds of reservations about this guy. He thinks he doesn't know anything about this part of the world. He doesn't really seem to have any interest in the people or the land. He just wants to hunt. But Burton feels kind of sorry for him. He thinks if he goes off on his own, he's going to die. It's really, really difficult and dangerous journey, even if you're totally prepared and have a whole legion of people with you. So he kind of against his best instincts, he decides, you know, yes, I'll bring you along on this trip. Why would one in 1850-something, consider doing a trip like this. I've already talked to another author who talked about a myriad of shipwrecks and terrible things that happen to people (laughs) in the 1800s when they go out on a ship. Is this a quest for glory? It is a quest for glory, absolutely. And this journey in particular, this was the holy grail of exploration. So people had been trying to discover the source of the Nile for millennia. So Egyptian kings and ancient philosophers and historians had all been wondering, and there have been many, many attempts to solve this mystery. But usually they had started at the Mediterranean Sea and tried to ascend the river, but they very quickly got mired in all these swamps and things and never got anywhere close to it. So it's not until the 1850s that they decide, okay, we actually should start well below the equator and make kind of an 
end around run into the interior. And absolutely, they're obsessed with it. They want the fame, they want the glory, and they want the knowledge. You know, I think, again, this is a story of the best and the worst of human nature. So so the good thing is this very natural, very human desire for understanding, to try to understand our world. The bad part is they knew, I mean, it was a direct and intended consequence of these explorations that they would then take over, try to take over this land as we know that they then ultimately did. In the search for the source of the White Nile, can you explain why it matters? Is there a re- <laughs> I've always been confused. Sure. Is there a religious significance or is it agricultural? It's the longest river in the world, the most storied river in the world that gave birth to one of the oldest and richest civilizations in the world. I mean, you wouldn't have ancient Egypt or modern day Egypt without the Nile. It's almost 4,000 miles long and it literally brings life. I mean, the ancient Egyptians used to think that it flowed into the afterlife, but they also recognized that it brought life to us today. It's with people living along its banks. And so it's everything that you can imagine. They are fast fascinated by it and it ends up in all of their stories and things, but it's also very, very practical. If it overflows, it can wipe out all this farmland and villages. And if it dries up, God forbid, that means widespread death. And so, of course, you would want to know where does it begin? So Burton reluctantly says, okay, Speak can come along with us. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the launch and the boat. Who are they taking with them? So this is an earlier expedition, and it's these two men and another European, and then they have a couple dozen other people with them. But that early expedition ended before it even began. So they got to what was then considered Somaliland, the land of the Somali people. And understandably, again, these people are not invited into this land, and they pose a very obvious danger to the people who live there. So they're attacked early on one night. Another member of the expedition is killed. Speak is stabbed 11 times. It's really miraculous that he survives. And Burton has a javelin thrust through his jaw from cheek to cheek, leaving this great scar down his face. And so it ends right then. And they've lost sort of everything that they put into it and are really dispirited. They go home. The Crimean War is going on. They fight in that for a little bit. And then they come back and they regroup. And the Royal Geographical Society, which is the sort of most revered scientific society in England, sets them up again, says, okay, we're going to form the East African Expedition and we're going to send you back again. And that was in 1856. So they returned to East Africa. This time they decide to start in Zanzibar. And it's just outside of Zanzibar that they meet the third main character in this book, Sidi Mubarak Bombay. Tell me a little bit about Mr. Bombay, because he has a very interesting past before he joins Speakin' Burton. He does. So Bombay was kidnapped as a child from his village in East Africa, and he was dragged hundreds of miles to the coast and then taken to Zanzibar, where he was sold in the slave market there for cloth. And he was just about 12 years old at that time. And then he was taken to Western India, where he was enslaved for 20 years. And then when the man who owned him died, he was given his freedom and he made his way back to East Africa. And he meets Burton and Speak there. And they're looking to hire porters and translators and guides, anybody they can. And it's really interesting because both of them write about how the minute they met Bombay, they knew they had to have him on 
on their expedition. And they very quickly say, okay, what's it going to take? You know, he's working for the Sultan and the Sultan's army at that time. They're like, okay, you know, what do we need to pay you? What do we need to do to convince you to come with us on this very long? I mean, these expeditions took years and very dangerous trip, but he's worth it. He's such a fascinating, incredibly capable figure, but also to me, what's so amazing about him is that after all this loss and all this personal tragedy, he emerged with this incredible kindness, this incredible generosity of spirit. And he really was the linchpin in this expedition and many expeditions to come. And it sounds like his story has largely been lost to history. Is that right? Until you've reintroduced him in this narrative. Right. I mean, you can find him. If you read Burton's account of these trips, If you certainly if you read Speaks and some of the other explorers with whom Bombay traveled, they do mention him. But to modern day people, I worked at National Geographic magazine for six years. So I was steeped in stories about exploration and Africa, and I had never heard his name. Hmm. And I was always interested in the story about Burton and Speak and the search for the source of the Nile. But I didn't know if I wanted to just tell that story. I thought there has to be something more. I know, obviously, the people of Africa made these expeditions happen. Without them, there's no way anyone would have gotten anywhere, right? Or would have survived, certainly. And so when I read about Sidi Mubarak Bombay, I realized, okay, it all makes sense. And this is a story I want to try to tell. Well, I mean, we've certainly read so many stories of the Great White Adventures. You've told those stories <laughs> of the Great White Adventures. So I'm sure this was a really pleasant route for you to go down to have someone of color, someone who really was pivotal, but just was one or two pages in most of these stories. So that's wonderful. Thank you. And he really is, I believe, the most accomplished explorer in the history of African exploration. So it would be too simplistic to call Bombay sort of a Sherpa for these men, because it sounds like there was a lot more to his role than just being a guide. Absolutely. And again, if you think about it in terms of guides, they're traveling thousands of miles. So they did have local guides to help them at certain stages and things. But yeah, he was a translator. He spoke Arabic. He spoke Swahili. He ends up learning English. He spoke Hindustani since he had been living in India. Again and again, you know, these people, they're scared. They're exhausted. They're starving. Many of the porters fled, understandably, because it was so difficult. And so he's always sort of lifting their spirits and keeping them going. And he was just this steady presence throughout. It's somebody we all hope to have in our lives, but certainly in a really difficult, dangerous situation like this, he was just irreplaceable. If we go back to Burton and Speak, they've gone on this first expedition already. They've met with just total disaster. They've both been seriously injured. Before that expedition, you said that Burton had reservations about Speak. Right. Has his opinion changed at all based on what happened with that first expedition then going into the second one with Bombay? No, it really didn't change at all. And if I could just tell you a little bit about these two men, if that's okay, so you can see how very, very different they were. And that was one of the things that interested me most about this story. So Richard Burton is 
unbelievably brilliant. So he ends up writing dozens of books, essays, poetry, translations. He spoke more than 25 different languages. He was the first Englishman to enter Mecca disguised as a Muslim. He studied every culture, every religion, and respected none. And he was always kind of considered an outsider in England because he had been born in England. His parents were British, but he had grown up in the continent. So he had moved from France to Italy to Greece, picking up languages and cultures along the way. And to Britons, he didn't really even look British. So he had really black hair and black, black eyes. And he even, it's interesting, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, who had gone to write Dracula, met Burton and was mesmerized by him. And he writes all these incredible descriptions of him, including describing his teeth, which he said were like gleaming daggers. So they think that Burton could have been the inspiration for Dracula. And then you have John Hanning Speak, who is his complete opposite in almost every way. So he's kind of what Britons expect their heroes to be, right? So he was born into the aristocracy. He was a lieutenant in the British Army. He loved to hunt. While Burton was steeped in books, Speak was steeped in hunting, right? And so they're just extremely, extremely different people. And the issue here is that Speak wants to be the commander of the expedition. And Burton's kind of not aware of it. He's worried about a lot of other things. But Speak takes offense at the slightest things, anything, and he builds up this anger and resentment toward Burton. And it's human nature, as we often know, a lot of times admiration, if it goes overboard, can turn into envy. And envy can turn into resentment. And resentment can turn very easily to hatred. And that's what happened with these two men this kind of festering bitterness inside of Speak for Burton, his commander. So expedition number two to Africa, do they arrive in 1857? Is that the time? 1856, right. And they're there. And yeah, and it takes them several years. Again, so they're crossing all the way across Tanzania toward Lake Tanganyika, going westward into the interior of Africa. And it's incredibly, I, I, I was there. I did research there. I got to see where they traveled. And it's amazing how diverse. I mean, you think, okay, well, it's thousands of miles, but it's very, you have swamps, you have mountains, you have jungles, you have deserts, you really kind of have everything. And it's a very, very difficult and grueling trip. Is this two years before the first major incident happens when they're in the interior of Africa searching for this source? That's right. They're searching for the source. So this is a couple of years after that first attack when they're in Somaliland and they've regrouped and they're going back in. Yeah, and they make it all the way to Lake Tanganyika, but they're also so ill. I mean, both men were blinded at one point and several other members of the expedition with eye infections and things. Burton has such severe malaria that he is paralyzed for almost a year. He can't walk. He can't hold a pen even. So when they get to Lake Tanganyika, he's so ill, he's not even well enough to go to try to find boats because they need to try to circumnavigate this lake and see if they can find a huge Nile-like river rushing out of it. And they're also, they're, they don't have enough supplies. They're worried about, they then they have to turn around and get all the way back. So they're just kind of in rags. It's unbelievably difficult. So what is this entourage, which you have to, of course, know that there are slaves involved carrying these people around. Right. What is their entourage like going into this wilderness full of multiple terrains? 
So they hire porters, obviously, and they also buy donkeys to help them carry. They have just hundreds of pounds of supplies that they're trying to carry with them. But again, people are deserting along the way, understandably. The donkeys are dying or running off. And they are people from many different groups of peoples who live in Africa that they've hired to try to take along with them. And so it's this long, long caravan that just stretches out across. (laughs) across, I mean, it's just really cool to imagine it sort of stretching out across the landscape, but they're staggering, often so, so ill. They just can't can't go at all and they have to be carried or try to ride a donkey or something. It's kind of crazy. Other than disease, what is the biggest danger? The locals, the animals? Yeah, starvation probably is the biggest danger because there are people around and obviously the expedition does pose a potential danger to them. And so there is always the danger of attack, but really they have to be able to negotiate for food. You know, they can't possibly carry enough food with them to feed all the men on this expedition. So trying to find people they can buy food from and bringing the right kinds of currency with them. So when they're in Zanzibar, they have to go to the market and they have to buy beads, they have to buy wire, they have to buy cloth, but they have to buy the right kinds of those things because it really depends on the group of people that they meet, what kinds. They might want cloth, but they might want a certain color of cloth or a certain quality of cloth or a certain color of beads. And also it changes. Sometimes they want white, sometimes they want red. And so it's really, really hard to know what to bring. Also, you have to carry all this stuff too. So maybe you've been carrying for a thousand miles all these supplies and nobody wants it. And so you you have sort of worthless currency and you're starving. Is Bombay helpful with all of this information? Yeah, he's kind of everything. He doesn't know this at this point in this first expedition. He doesn't know this land very well. And most of the porters really don't know a lot of the land because they're from the coast, right? And so they don't know a lot of the land they're trekking through. They don't know a lot of the people. And sometimes they don't know the languages. But Bombay, again, is sort of the everyman, right? And so a lot of times it seems, I mean, he does get ill, but not as often, obviously, as Burton and Speak. So a lot of times he's nursing them, he's caring for them, and he's making sure really everybody keeps going. One of the things I think is interesting about the story, which is, I think, interesting in history, is the amount of betrayals and the type of betrayals that happen. And there's a betrayal that's getting ready to happen at some point, right? So lead us up to what's happening. It sounds like Burton is just on death's door, right? And Speak doesn't sound much better. Speak's been very, very ill, but he is recovering and Burton is still really ill. So they're coming back from Lake Tanganyika and they know that there's another lake that they've been told is even larger and it's to the north. It's in mostly in modern day Uganda. And so Speak says, let's go, let's go check that out. And Burton is so ill. And again, they have very little supplies and he's worried that they won't even make it to the coast, much less take this extra expedition north. And so Speak says, just let me. Let me try. You wait here and get better and try to fix everything that needs to be fixed for the push back to the coast. And let me take Bombay and a few other men and go north. And so he does. He goes to Lake Nyanza, which is the largest lake in Africa. It's the second largest freshwater lake in the world. It's just 
I've been there. It's mind-bendingly huge. And he sees it and he's in the southern part of it. And he says, this is it. This is the source of the White Nile. I know that it is, even though he has absolutely no evidence, no proof. And he's only there for a couple of days, but he just believes it, right? And so he comes back to Burton. He's like, guess what? This is great. I found the source of the Nile. And Burton says, maybe, maybe you did. We don't know, right? And so he says, look, let's go back to Zanzibar, get better, regroup, and let's make another push. And Speak is enraged. He is so insulted that Burton doesn't immediately believe him. So they do go back to Zanzibar and Burton needs to stay a little bit longer to get better and Speak's well enough to go on to England. And Speak says to Burton, don't worry, I won't talk to anybody until you can join me back in England. And so Burton says, okay, Mm -hmm. but Speak leaves. And the day after he gets back to London, he goes directly to the president of the Royal Geographical Society. He says, I've discovered the source of the White Nile. And the president loves him and is so excited. And he's like, Speak, we must send you back. So by the time Burton returns, Speak is the hero of the hour. And Speak has been given the next expedition to try to confirm what he believes is the source of the Nile. Okay, so again, simplistic question. How would one confirm that this is the source of the Nile without a helicopter? I'm not sure what actually. (laughs) How would you confirm it now? The Nile rushes out of the northern part of the lake. So again, speak on this first trip with Bombay, he was at the southern part of it. And I have a map in the book so you can see it. But again, this is unbelievably huge, huge lake. So what they had to do when Speak went back with this man, James Grant and Bombay again, they went all the way around the western edge of the lake to the northern reaches and saw the Nile rushing out of the lake. And so there are all kinds of scientific measurements you can take, and they took all kinds of instruments. But a lot of it was also talking to the people who lived there. And it's really interesting because at the time, armchair geographers back in London and gentlemen scientists... Oh, wait, armchair geographers. (laughs) Exactly. There are a lot of them. And they were very arrogant. And they always poo-pooed any what they would call native information, right? Like, of course, you can't trust information from the people who actually live there. But all these explorers who would go there, they knew they absolutely had to rely on information from the people who live there. I mean, it's just common sense. And so speak, he interviewed, he talked to everybody he could. And it was really great, you know, because this one guy, he asks, how big is the lake? Like, how far does it go? And the guy just keeps waving his hand forward again, again, again. He just says, it never ends. It goes to the end of the world. I can just picture Burton's reaction. (laughs) He finally gets over malaria and he returns to England and he reads the papers or talks to the head of the Royal Geographical Society and finds out that Speak has made this claim without him and any kind of acknowledgement of help that he got from him. Right, right. In fact, he is cast as the sort of weak and feeble, sort of hobbling behind the heroic Speak, right? Mm -hmm. No, he's shocked, you know, because again, he didn't realize the resentment that Speak felt for him because Speak never expressed it until really at the very end of their expedition, Speak became very, very ill and nearly died. And he was in this feverish 
mania and he kind of spills out all of his anger toward Burton. And so until that moment, Burton was kind of clueless about how Speak felt. And he also didn't understand this burning ambition that Speak had. So he gets back and he's just bewildered and he realizes because he's six years younger than Burton. He says this, thinks that this young man who I sort of took under my wing and was mentoring and I thought there was a friendship there. We're not friends, we're rivals. I taught him everything I knew and I helped him and now he's my enemy. Does Burton try to go to the press and reframe the narrative of what happened when he got sick? No, he doesn't. I mean, he is interested in his own expedition, and he does propose his own expedition to the Royal Geographical Society. And they say, sure, maybe, but everybody knows. I mean, even his earlier expedition, it was woefully underfunded. So there's no way, and they've already committed to sending Speak back as a leader of his own. So there's no way they're going to be able to afford to do two expeditions, and they're not going to want that either, these two rival expeditions to try to confirm that the Nyanza is is the source. So in theory, they're like, oh yeah, sure, we'll, we'll think about it. And Burton's obviously also not really well enough to go back quite yet. And Speak is younger and Speak is healthy. He's ready to go. And he has the support at that moment of the Royal Geographical Society. So the Nyanza, is that truly, is that the source? It is truly the source. So he found it. (laughs) It was luck. Well, I will say Speak was brave and he was determined and he was willing to make this extra trip, right? But he didn't know. He just guessed. And even when he went back with James Grant and he saw it rushing out, you really have to circumnavigate the entire thing. And it wasn't until years later when Henry Morton Stanley went with Bombay and he circumnavigated both the Tanganyika and the Nyanza and confirmed for sure, for sure, yes, this is the source of the White Nile. So Speak goes back down with Bombay, and you said they did something which was smart, which is they talked to locals. They confirmed it as well as they could in the 1850s, 1860s. And Speak returns, and what does he say? He says to the press again, okay, confirmed, I solved the mystery. Is that right? Right. He's this great hero, right? Everyone is really, really excited. The whole world is watching. But then he gets, it's really, really interesting. You know, I think that when somebody is so ambitious and also it's this kind of fatal combination of arrogance and insecurity, right? So he knows that he's not brilliant like Burton. He hasn't had the accomplishments that Burton has had. And so he's always insecure about Burton, trying to take the limelight back from him. And he sort of lashes out at people. And he even alienates a Royal Geographical Society. So the society obviously put everything behind him. They chose him. They gave him this unbelievable opportunity and they funded it. And he gets back and they have this very famous lauded journal that every explorer for them who goes off into the world, then they come back and they write an article for this journal. Well, Speak decides that instead of giving his article to the Royal Geographical Society, he's going to give it to this publisher, this kind of famous publisher, Blackwoods Magazine. It's a Scottish publisher because he feels like, well, I want it to be more widely read. You can make more money from that and get more attention. And the Royal Geographical Society is sort of like, what? What are you doing? 
after we gave you everything, right? And then also he starts criticizing all these other people. It's a long sort of sordid tale, hmm. but he definitely alienates everyone. So it comes to a point where the Royal Geographical Society really doesn't want to have anything to do with either of these men. So Speak comes back and he says, this is confirmed. Mm -hmm. What has Richard Burton been doing besides seething, clearly? (laughs) What does an explorer do in his downtime? Well, yeah, so he is angry and he's depressed. And it was interesting about Richard Burton is he always was at his best when he had a challenge. So even after he had some great triumph, that's when he falls into this deep depression because it's over. The challenge is over and he needs the next push. And so he had always believed that I'm always going to have this next challenge because I need to then go back and find the source of the Nile. And he's been denied that. One thing he does is he actually comes to the United States. And he travels around. He goes through most of the Western United States to Utah. And he studies some Native American peoples. And he writes a book about that. And he also gets married. He also surprisingly falls in love. So there's this really interesting woman named Isabel Arundel. And she kind of like speak as very, very different from Burton. So she was raised in the aristocracy to a very strict very religious family, but she dreams of a really adventurous life and of freedom. And she says, I wish I were a man because there are all kinds of strictures on women in Victorian England, all these things that they couldn't do. And then she meets Richard Burton and she says, I would be Richard Burton, but since I can't be Richard Burton, I would be his wife. Hmm. And he falls in love with her too, but he's gone and they know each other. It takes nine years (laughs) for him to finally propose. And in this nine years, he's going to Mecca, he's going to Aden, he's going to Somaliland and East Africa, and he's having all these adventures. And she is sort of preparing to be his wife. So she's learning how to ride a horse and she's learning how to fence. And her dream is that someday she'll be called upon to try to save his life. And so she does finally, in the end, get to travel with him and things, but also the dangers of obsession. So she builds her whole life around his life and becomes incredibly obsessed with him. Okay, I want to come back to Isabel (laughs) because that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about the relationship that he had with Speak after these expeditions. So Speak has sort of isolated himself from the Royal Geographical Society, which sounds to me a little bit like refusing to sit down for a presidential portrait. (laughs) Right? Right. I mean, who would do that? So he's isolated himself and Burton doesn't have the next great adventure. Do their lives intersect at any time before they both die? after that. They do just briefly. So they don't see each other. So Speak goes back to Africa. Burton is in the United States. And then he's in sort of Western Africa. He has a consulship and on and on. But then they do come back. The Royal Geographical Society has a big conference in the summer. And they really want to attract attention. And they know that people are most interested in their explorers. And the real story of the day is this search for the source of the Nile. And people have been watching this sort of feud between Burton Burton and Speak, because Burton is still like, well, I really think it's a Tanganyika and Speak's insisting that it's the Nyanza. And so they decide they're going to have what they end up calling the Great Nile Debate. So they do come back and they're going to debate at this big conference in Bath. 
how would one debate the source of the Nile if you don't have photographic evidence or any kind of evidence, really? (laughs) Well, that's what made it so difficult and painful and stressful for speak because it's all information, right? It's uh, it's all the information that you've gathered. You're speaking to scientists, right? These armchair geographers that we were talking about and also scientists who have been studying this part of the world for their whole lives and have very strong beliefs one way or another. And so here's Burton who has all of this deep, deep knowledge. And he's also a famously electric speaker. People love to hear him speak. He's famous. And he loves a good fight too, right? He loves to sort of twist people up into verbal knots. And then you have Speak, who's outwardly quiet and modest. And Burton, by the way, is an incredibly talented writer as well. And Speak isn't any of those things. Speak hates writing. He's very, very ineffective writer. And he's a very, very ineffective speaker as well. And again, yes, he was there and he was lucky. He was right. But he doesn't have any proof, right? And he doesn't really have the deep knowledge I would take to make his argument. So obviously he's intimidated and he feels like he's going to be publicly embarrassed. Right, right. The Royal Geographical Society brings in speakers and things. And yes, everybody's talking about this issue. And again, by this point, Speak has alienated even Murchison, who was the president of the Royal Geographical Society, who believed in him so much and gave him the command of the next expedition. Even he's alienated. So he's lost a lot of friends. So he knows not only does he not have what it takes to make this argument, but he doesn't really have any friends in the audience. So what is Bombay's reaction, do we know, to all of this controversy? Because he's been there from the beginning and he went to all of these expeditions, right? At least the last two. Right. No, unfortunately, we don't know. I mean, he's still in East Africa. So he never, even though he went on all these expeditions, he never got to go to England. And they talked about it at different points. Oh, we'll have to bring you here, Bombay. But he never did get to go. So he's living his life. He's surviving and he's living his life in East Africa. And so unfortunately, we don't know sort of what his thoughts were on the controversy or if he was even really that aware of what was going on so far away in England. So in doing a different podcast, I was interviewing someone who's an expert in 1700s and 1800s public insults and touching a man's nose is akin to (laughs) making fun of his penis and all this other stuff. The great duel, right? Right. So I can imagine the egotism that these men have, these explorers, Mm -hmm. and now it's all coming to fruition. It's all coming out and they're going to have this debate and Speak is about to debate someone who obviously is more capable than he is and he already has all these doubters. What leads up to this debate that's supposed to happen? So I would rather not give the whole thing away, what happens, but I will say, so the day before the debate, Speak and Burton are both in this hall in Bath where the debate is going to take place the next day. And they hadn't seen each other for more than a year and they hadn't spoken in all that time. And they had had this huge falling out. And Isabel, Burton's wife by then, is with him and she sees and she later writes about what Speak looked like. She's like, he just looked shocked and sickened when he sees Burton and the two men kind of look at each other and speak. He quickly stands up and he's like, I can't do this. And he rushes off and he leaves. He goes to his uncle's estate. So his uncle had an estate just outside of Bath called Neston Park, where he would love to hunt. Because again, 
that's what Speak loved to do. He was really, really good at it. And that's what he would turn to for sort of solace and quote unquote peace for him um, was hunting. And so he goes there to be with his cousin. And there's this sort of shocking, tragic twist to the story that happens at Neston Park. Yeah, it's a tragedy that happens. What could have changed any of this? They seem to be set up with being heroes, and it's so easy to fail or to be questioned or jealousies. This just seems like there's only really one way this particular situation would have ended. Right. I think one of the big lessons, at least I learned after studying this story for so many years, is the danger of arrogance and ignorance, which always seem to go together. They're always kind of hand in hand. So there's the arrogance of thinking you can, quote unquote, discover a land where millions of people have lived for hundreds of thousands of years and that you can somehow improve their lives by taking their land and taking their resources. And then there's the danger of this sort of blinding envy and resentment, right? And letting that fester. And so I think to me, the only way you can fix that or prevent it is to bring with you some modesty and some humility and an honest approach to another land and another group of people. And you just didn't have that in Victorian Europe or Victorian United States, you know, any of the Western world and their approach to anywhere else in the world. What they needed was just some humility, I think. Before we talk about Richard Burton and what happens with his life after what happens with Speak, how is John Hannon Speak framed in history and nautical history, do you think? Well, it's really interesting. So he was the first European to find the source of the Nile. But even then, he's been largely forgotten. You know, Burton is very well remembered today. There are dozens of biographies about him. And I think that's just because of the force of his personality, because he was just this insane genius, you know, and he was just mesmerizing and fascinating. And speak, there's only one biography that was written about him, and it was written about a hundred years after his death. And there are a few memorials to him, but not that many people know his name. And what about Richard Burton? Did he accomplish anything else? He really doesn't. And it's really interesting because, again... (laughs) That's not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) I know. I mean, he does try. It's really interesting the way bitterness can kind of twist your heart and really affect your life. And so he's angry and he ends up, he's poor and he's kind of largely forgotten and shuttled aside. And the only thing he has are his translations. So he starts translating like the Arabian Nights the Kama Sutra, which is obviously scandalizing Victorian England, but they sell really, really well. (laughs) So people, yeah, when they're outraged, they're they're secretly buying it, right? (laughs) And so he's like, he thinks that's hilarious, actually. So that's his really his only source of income. And he's given really sort of out of the way consulships that nobody else wants. And he's angry and resentful. But the one thing that is interesting about Richard Burton, one of the many things interesting, but to me, is at the end of his life, the end. And when he's kind of, again, he's poor and sort of forgotten. I found this article by this American journalist who was well-known journalist during the Civil War. He's a really smart guy, went to Yale and he's in London and he's rushing off to a party and he's running up these stairs and he's late 
But he sees this man who's sitting on these stairs with a book and a pen in his hand. He's shocked. He's like, this is Richard Burton, famous Richard Burton. And Burton looks up at him and he's clearly like coming out of a fog because he's been so immersed in this. And he's translating this ancient poem and he describes Burton. And it's like, that's who Burton is. He's this incredible scholar, right? Mm. There's always this quest for knowledge, whether it's going to distant lands or delving deep into literature. And that's who he is essentially. And that, in the end of his life, when he's basically lost everything else, he still has that sort of the essence of who he is. And that can't be taken away. Well, it's interesting because I wrote down the phrase, the inability to adapt, which I think is the doom of many people. And I was going to suggest it sounded like that, that this sort of dream of him with a legacy of being an adventurer has gone and he's been mired by misery. But it does sound like, I'm going to cross that out now because it does sound like he was able to adapt. He might not have been happy, but he didn't totally give up at the end. Right. Again, that's who he was, essentially. Again, this quest for knowledge. And I loved, love that moment. And I have that in the book because I think that shows really who he was. He was genuine, right? He was the real deal. Well, Speak wanted to be admired, right? And Speak wanted to be considered this great hero and everything. And he was brave, but Burton was the real deal. Burton's knowledge was earned. He did go to Oxford, but he was bored there. He was bullied and he figured out a way to be expelled. And so everything else, all these languages he learns, all these, like he he could recite a quarter of the Quran. He genuinely studied everything and immersed himself in it. And he had this once in a century mind. He was a genius. He was genuinely a genius. Do you think that he felt in his heart that his legacy had been stolen from him by speak, just what happened at the end. I think he did. And no one was more shocked and grief-stricken when Speak dies. And he says, Speak's death has silenced us both. Hmm. So now he feels like, I can't talk about it anymore either. I can't defend myself anymore either. He does eventually go on and try to do it. But as I said, this sort of this enmity ends up destroying both men. So tell me, you did a little tease with Isabel Burton's wife, who seems to really idolize him, which is dangerous. But she also has a commitment to religion. Is she Church of England? She's Catholic. She's Catholic. And so she, yeah, interestingly, even though she was from the aristocracy, they were kind of on the outsiders as well because of their Catholicism. But she, as a fervent believer, and Burton, his entire life was an open and adamant agnostic. He's like, I'm interested in every single religion, but I don't don't believe in any of them. And she keeps trying to convert him. And even when he dies, she brings in a priest when he's dying to try to give him last rites. Even the priest is like, I know he's not Catholic. And I know I don't think he would want that. And she begs and begs and she insists on a Catholic funeral for him. It's super, super important to him. And then she goes to this very tragic, especially to anybody who's interested in the story, this very tragic step farther in what she believes it's going to take to save her husband's soul. So ultimately, we've talked about this before, this is a story about adventurers, egotism getting in the way, a lack of collaboration, a lack of common sense in a lot of these ways. And I think, especially if we come back to Bombay, just lost history, right? People who have for centuries not been given credit for huge things that have been found, the discoveries that have changed the world, where you have just generations of people who have been lost in history. 
Right. And that's not just Africa. It's many, many other parts of the world where Europeans would send explorers and relied so heavily on the people who lived there. And I will say, though, it's interesting. I mean, I, I want to make it clear, I'm certainly not the first by any means to point this out and to try to bring this to people's attention. And I'll give credit to the Royal Geographical Society, because even though obviously at the time they weren't really interested, I mean, they did actually give Bombay a medal and they a few other of the really well-known guides did give them medals and gave them some stipends. It wasn't until kind of recently that the Royal Geographical Society said, you know, we really need to acknowledge the role that these people played in mapping their own continents. So they have had exhibits and things about this. So they are trying to fill in that record and right those wrongs. Do we have any idea what happened with Bombay? Yeah, so he lived to be about 65 years old and he was able to achieve what neither Burton nor Speak were able to do, even though they had all the advantages, all the resources, all this ambition to do it. But he, again, was able to go on all these expeditions and I believe became one of, if not the most widely traveled man in Africa at that time. He traveled his whole continent, as I said, from east to west and contributed in a very serious, very significant way to the mapping of his homeland. On the next episode of Wicked Words, the hosts of the podcast Red Handed discuss notorious murderers and their motivations. I think what so often happens in true crime is that when there are couple killers, which is rare, our go-to is that, oh, actually, the woman must be under the spell of this horrendous man. I don't think that's Carla at all. I think we are trained to perceive women as being so submissive that they couldn't possibly have the idea on their own. I think we're too quick to write women off as drivers of violent crime. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.